Good afternoon. How you doing? It's nice to see you. Thanks for coming out. My name is Tom Hall. I'm the music director of the Baltimore Choral Arts Society and the culture editor for Maryland Morning with Sheila Cast on 88.1 WYPR. And we are delighted to uh, have you come to this session of this wonderful fifth annual City Lit Festival. Uh, Greg Wilhelm, I don't see him in the room yet, but he, he deserves a round of applause in absentia for putting this thing together. He does such great work with the City Lit Festival throughout, with the City Lit Project throughout the year, and this festival, of course, is one of the great signature events. So glad you all could be here to join us. We are joined on the stage by three very distinguished authors who have uh, achieved uh, international acclaim and who have uh, really uh, helped put Baltimore uh, securely on the literary map. Uh, around the United States and elsewhere. And it's just a terrific thing to have uh, folks who have been so successful uh, make their home here in Maryland. Uh, let me introduce them to you. And uh, the way we'll proceed this afternoon is we'll, uh, after I tell you a little bit about them, I'm sure most of you know a lot about them already, um, we'll ask each of them to uh, read uh, a selection from their latest books. We'll talk a little bit to them about their books and about their careers, and then we'll have uh, ample opportunity for you all to have questions as well, and then we'll break around. Uh, and that clock isn't right either. We, we're, num- we're running into all sorts of clocks. That's why we're a little late. We were downstairs, and the clock said it was 10 minutes of one. This one says it's quarter after. But um, I do actually know what time it is, and um, I'll keep a, uh, an eye on that, and then there'll be uh, lots of opportunity for you to follow them downstairs and uh, get their books and have them sign them and uh, talk to you about them. So, um, Dan Fesperman, who is directly to my right, uh, his travels as a writer have taken him to more than 30 countries and three war zones, beginning with the Persian Gulf War in 1991. As a journalist, he has worked for the Fayetteville, North Carolina Times, the Durham Morning Herald, the Charlotte News, the Miami Herald, and the Sun and Evening Sun here in Baltimore. While he was at the Sun, he covered the Gulf War from Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. He lived in Berlin and ran the paper's uh, Europe Bureau during the years of the Yugoslav civil wars in Croatia and Bosnia. And in 2001, he covered events in Pakistan and Afghanistan in the wake of 9-11. He also reported throughout the rest of Europe and the Middle East. He has won the Crime Writers Association of Britain's John Creasy Memorial Dagger Award, the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger Award, and the Dashiell Hammett Award from the International Association of Crime Novels. His latest book is The Amateur Spy. It's his fifth novel. Let's welcome Dan Fesper. Let me introduce everybody, and then we'll have each of you. We'll come back to each of you. Laura Lippman is also with us. She was a reporter for 20 years, uh, including 12 years at the Baltimore Sun. Her other newspaper and jobs uh, included the Waco Tribune Herald and the San Antonio Light. She began writing novels while working full time at the Sun. She published seven books about the accidental private investigator Tess Monahan before leaving daily journalism in 2001. Her work has been awarded the Edgar, the Anthony, the Agatha, the Seamus, the Nero Wolf, 
Gumshoe and Barry Awards. She's also been nominated for other prizes in the crime fiction field, including the Hammett and McCavity Awards. She was the first ever recipient of the Mayor's Prize for Literary Excellence and the first genre writer recognized as Author of the Year by the Maryland Library Association. Another Thing to Fall is her 13th novel. It appeared on the New York Times bestseller list on March 30th. The one before this, What the Dead Know, uh, was also, also spent some time on the New York Times bestseller list. Let's please welcome Laura Lippman. And Manil Suri, to my far right, was born in uh, Bombay, which is now uh, Mumbai, India. He came to the United States as a student when he was 20 years old. He lives in Silver Spring, Maryland, when he's not visiting Mumbai, and is a citizen of both the United States and India. Dr. Suri's first published fiction was in, uh, in English, rather, was The Seven Circles, a short story that appeared in the New Yorker magazine in 2000. The Death of Vishnu, his first novel, was released worldwide in 2001. In addition to being published by W.W. W. Norton in the United States and Bloomsbury in the UK, that novel has been translated into 22 foreign languages. It won the 2002 Barnes & Noble Discover Prize and was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. Dr. Suri was named by Time Magazine as a person to watch in 2000, and he received a Guggenheim Fellowship for Fiction in 2004. His second novel is The Age of Shiva. It was released last year. Dr. Suri is also a mathematician. He obtained his PhD in applied mathematics from Carnegie Mellon University, and he's a tenured full professor in the Department of Mathematics and Statistics at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Let's please welcome Manil Suri. So Dan, let's start with you. We're going to do this in alphabetical order. Um, tell us, first of all, uh, what the distinction, if there is a distinction, between the genre known as crime fiction and mystery? Ooh. Well, and then there's espionage fiction, and then there's thrillers and literary thrillers, and you've got a lot of breakdowns and subgenres and all of that, and I think the difference is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, I don't think writers get hung up on those differences so much as uh, some readers do. Some readers like it and like to submerge themselves into one little aspect of it. And they might like to read All Cozies, which is a subgenre of mysteries. Uh, and I think a crime novel, when you say that, I think that uh, the connotation is it's, maybe it's a bit bleaker, a bit darker, uh, more tends more toward noir. Uh, you're dealing with the nitty-gritty and maybe coming at it even more often from the criminal's point of view, like, say, in an Elmore Leonard book. Mm -hmm. But uh, you're maybe not trying to figure out who done it as much as why they did it and uh, how these people operate and how they think. Well, your book, uh, The Amateur Spy, your uh, protagonist is a guy named Freeman Lockhart, uh, and he's sort of a guy who sort of wants out of the game, uh, yes. but he finds himself back in. So tell us about... The, what happens in this book, a little bit about what happens. Yes, he's, in, he's a long-time United Nations aid worker, and he's done time all over the world in lots of parts of Africa, in the Balkans, in the Middle East. Uh, he feels like he's become a bit of a caterer to disaster, which is what a lot of UN people feel like after a while when they're handing out food at all these places, sometimes feeling like they're helping enable some of these civil wars by supplying them with uh, food and drink. And he and his uh, much younger wife, who he met in the Balkans, and she is from the former Yugoslavia, they've decided to 
to get out of this. They're a bit burned out. They've had some pretty terrible experiences. And he's in his mid-50s when he's getting out and thinks he's getting out of that type of activity for good when he's visited late one night in their new place in the Greek islands by uh, some fellows who want him to do one last assignment for them and not as an aid worker but more as an espionage operative. And there's another uh, couple who figure very uh, heavily in this book, a doctor and, and his wife, uh, and the wife's name is uh, Aliyah. Tell us about them and how they figure into this. Yes, uh, Aliyah and her husband, Abbas, uh, they, uh, they're an Arab-American couple, but uh, really neither she nor her husband, uh, they're Palestinian, but uh, he moved over when he was probably about 10 or 11, and she moved over when she was 5. She hardly even remembers the place much, so... Their sense of identity, uh, at least in her case, is even stronger with America than it is with uh, where, they're, where they were born and, and uh, spent part of their childhood. However, like many Arab Americans, they, uh, since 9-11, they've started to run up against a lot of, uh, in their case, a lot of unwarranted mistrust. Uh, their family's gone through some difficult times, some uh, improper arrest, a lot of suspicion that uh, never should have come up. So she's beginning to identify a bit more, and her husband even more so, uh, with uh, the Palestinian cause. And her husband's a prominent surgeon in Washington, and uh, after a really uh, a terrible event involving the death of their daughter overseas, which they partly blame uh, some U.S. government uh, inattention for, the, she's quite worried that her husband is not only falling into depression, but that he may be wavering some toward some even greater instability and in contemplating something pretty horrible. Well, can you read us an excerpt? I will. Let's hear a little bit from the amateur spy. And the excerpt I'm going to read you is when Freeman Lockhart is visited by these people, uh, they want him to go to Amman, Jordan, and spy on someone he once worked with in the Middle East on the West Bank during the Intifada when he was in his 30s. And this uh, Palestinian fellow was in his uh, early mid and mid-20s. And... Uh, They worked together in what the United Nations put together these observer patrols during the Intifada, which was the Palestinian (laughs) uprising. And this fellow's name was Omar al-Baroudi. And Freeman worked with him. He was paired up with him in these observer patrols. And uh, this passage I will read to you uh, tells how they met and what these patrols did and sort of their rocky beginnings uh, as friends. And uh, we'll explain to you why he would be a bit uneasy when some uh, 20 years later... He was asked to go spy on this fellow because uh, these people who are asking him thinks that Omar has gotten involved in something which is funneling money to all the wrong places in the Middle East. And this is narrated uh, from the point of view of Freeman. We never would have met if not for Hans Wolters, a big German with a generous laugh whose life mission was to save the entire Middle East, Jew by Jew, Arab by Arab. Hans had begun his hopeless quest as a 20-year-old tourist, one of those earnest young backpackers in a sweaty bandana who sleeps in hostels and rides the same teeming buses as the natives, subsisting on falafel by day and ramen noodles by night. He had arrived in Jerusalem only months after the Six-Day War, and upon reaching the stone gates of the old city, he found himself in a moral quandary. With whom should he empathize more? the plucky survivors of the death camps, or their downtrodden conquests, the West Bank Palestinians. Being a descendant of crusaders and Nazis, Hans felt deeply indebted to both sides. So he volunteered for a summer of labor on a kibbutz and then enlisted in the UN's effort to feed and clothe the children of the Jabalia refugee camp in benighted Gaza. 
Two decades of this even-handed approach made Hans the perfect choice to run the show once the UN began organizing its human rights observer patrols in, the late, in late 87, shortly after the Intifada uprising began. It was strange and stressful work. Much like a beat cop, we spent our days making a rough circuit of our territory. Sometimes the dispatcher called in an incident and we raced to the scene. But usually we found trouble on our own and then expended our energies trying to avert more of the same. We engaged daily in dozens of small negotiations, trying our tact on a bewildering variety of officers from the IDF. Some were high, some were scared, others were alternately bored, angry, nice, brutal, and fair-minded. You had about 15 seconds to get a read on their mood and motivation, and about 15 more to establish enough rapport to diffuse the situation. Munira, my first partner, showed me the ropes. She'd been on the job since December, and I learned more about what it meant to be a Palestinian in those first three months than I had in a year of working at Jabalia. She also taught me the finely balanced etiquette of our pairings. None of the Palestinians ever wanted to be patted on the back or shown any sort of familiarity by an Israeli officer, which would brand them forever as a collaborator. None of the army officers ever wanted to lose face by having a Palestinian walk, talk down to them or brandish one of our handheld radios in their presence. In all our time together, I don't think Munira once opened her mouth in the presence of a soldier, yet she almost always set the tone in our dealings with the vast restive rabble of Palestinian teenage boys known on the streets as the Shabab. By the time June rolled around, I was beginning to think I knew all there was to know about our odd new profession. Then Hans paired me with a newcomer, named Omar al-Baroudi, and it was my turn to be the teacher. Omar was 27 then, a graduate in urban planning from Birzeit University, whose father had achieved a certain status and wealth as the owner of a few hotels in the West Bank. Our first week was rocky, the second rockier. I kept having to remind him not to carry the radio when we left the car, and he kept taking it anyway. Whenever we watched the Shabab creep within stone-throwing range of the tanks, Omar always seemed on the verge of running to join them, balanced on his toes with eagerness burning in his eyes. In meeting army officers, he perfected the art of the bristle, head thrown back and chest out, a smoldering glare in his eyes. We talked about it, of course, with Omar always professing ignorance of any attitude problem, until one day, with only a week left in our hitch, everything boiled over. It happened during a visit to an IDF central military office near Nablus, Nablus, the Nablus route was my favorite, partly because of its stark beauty, not only the city, set between steep, barren mountains, but also the rolling landscape, which in the spring bloomed riotously with wildflowers. It also offered the most action. The Palestinians called Nablus Jebel Amnar, the mountain of fire. The Israelis answered that they would turn it into Jebel Ramad, the mountain of ash. Because the city was so far north of our headquarters in Jerusalem, Nablus was the one patrol that featured that required an overnight stay on location at a UN crash pad. And by the end of each shift in Nablus, you were thoroughly wrung out. That was the condition Omar and I were in as we approached the IDF headquarters. These compounds were scattered around the occupied territories. Each was fenced in and heavily fortified with its own military court, prison, interrogation center, and barracks. We always parked our Passat outside out of regard for our own image as much as theirs, entered through a revolving barred gate, and then crossed the yard to the main building where a presiding officer monitored the comings and goings, much like a police desk sergeant at a precinct house. On this occasion, we were visiting on behalf of a family in Nablus whose son had been detained an hour earlier after some rioting. 
The soldiers had come to his house. He'd never been in trouble before, so his parents were naturally concerned about his fate. As luck would have it, three soldiers brought the boy out the door of headquarters just as we arrived. Luckier still, Captain David Ben-Zohar led the procession. He had one of the better reputations among the officers, and while I would never have called us friends, I like to think we had a grudging mutual respect. Captain Ben-Zohar always seemed a little regretful about the business of military occupation, but his reputation for occasional leniency had never cost him an ounce of loyalty among his men, who were invariably well-disciplined. No high as a kite young recruits in his command. But this time I was disappointed to see that the boy in custody was bruised and bloody. It looked like he had gotten quite a going over, and when Ben-Zohar spotted Omar and me, he seemed almost sheepish. What's happened to him, I asked. I tried not to sound confrontational, but as I said, it had been a long day. Perhaps the same was true for Ben-Zohar, judging from what followed. He arrived this way, the captain said wearily. We only picked him up a minute ago. We just came from his family who told us you took him an hour ago. He's been beaten. Jews don't torture people. Give me a fucking break. Sorry, I don't have time for this. Ben Zohar shoved me aside. The next thing I knew, Omar was unclipping the handheld radio from my belt. He began hailing our dispatcher in Jerusalem, shouting loudly, An injustice has been done in Nablus. Ben Zohar exploded. What the hell's he doing with that thing? Omar answered before I could. I'm calling in this outrage. You're acting like a Nazi. Nazi? Did you say Nazi? The three soldiers surged forward as one, and all I remember now is pushing my hands against their chests. It was a bit like fending off a stampede with a cattle prod. Omar, at least, had the good sense to take shelter behind me instead of striking back. The first blow glanced sharply off my head, and fortunately that was enough to jolt Ben Zohar back to his senses. He quickly shouted a command in Hebrew to restore order, and it was a testament to his abilities as a commander that his men immediately backed off, even though they were still snarling for a chance to bring down the uppity young Arab. Get him out of here, now, and don't ever bring him back. You're lucky I'm not arresting you both. Omar was trembling in anger or fear, maybe both, and once we were back in the car with the doors shut, I decided to strike while he was still off balance. What the hell was that? Never do that again. You are never to use the radio in the presence of a soldier, and you are never to cause an officer to lose face. You nearly screwed our entire operation. Do you understand? He looked at the floor a few seconds before answering in a tone of wounded indignation. I cannot stand by in silence when they lie. I am sorry, but there's no way around it. I must be true to my people. I must be true to myself. I waited to see if he would say anything more. When he didn't, I took a deep breath to collect myself while trying not to dwell on what a close call we'd just had. Under a lesser commander, they would have beaten both of us senseless and locked us up. And then I spoke again, firmly but gently. Omar, from now on you must try to practice takia. He looked up in surprise. Takiya is an Arabic term for an Islamic tradition of behavior in dangerous circumstances. It basically maintains that when your life is threatened, especially in the presence of the enemy, you're allowed to hide the truth or even lie in self-protection. How do you know of these things, Omar asked, from the Holy Quran? Hmm, clever boy. It was a trick question designed to expose me as a dilettante, which is exactly what I was. But I did know that Takiya hadn't come from the prophet himself, but instead from the philosophers who parsed his words for deeper meaning. Not from the Holy Quran, I said, although I've read the Holy Quran. Have you now? All of it? Still testing me. Well, no, not all of it. At this, he actually grinned, and you could feel the air pressure in the car drop by several notches. 
Neither have I, but don't tell my mother. A week later, after we had completed our final patrol and I thought I'd seen the last of him, I was sitting up late in my apartment on the Mount of Olives, seated by the picture window with its fine view as I filled out Omar's evaluation. The lights of the old city twinkled against the clear night sky. His future was in my hands, and for a while I considered recommending dismissal. His temper had endangered our safety. But I doubted Hans would have had the heart to drop the axe, and Omar had noticeably mellowed after our close call. Perhaps, if held in check, his passion would be a good thing, and maybe his lack of control had been as much due to my inexperience as his. Endorsing him for further action seemed like a risk worth taking. Three months later, I knew my gamble had paid off when I walked into the office in Jerusalem to begin my last quarterly hitch and found Omar waiting, smiling and patient. He had asked Hans to reunite us, and for the balance of our time together, he was steady and communicative and played the game as well as anyone. Dan Fesserman in the book is The Amateur Spy. It's a wonderful arc to that scene. It's terrific. So, Laura Lippman, we'll move now to you. Welcome. Um, you have, you are just so prolific. You just have books and books and books. Can't read them as fast as you write them. Um, of the 13 books that you've published, how many of these are Tess Monahan books? Ten. 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 So another thing to follow is the tenth in the Tess Monahan series. And do you are you now in a in a in a schedule where you're alternating consciously, or how how's that going to work? Yes, I am. I mean, it's nothing official. It's nothing that's been asked of me or demanded of me. I found I wrote the first book out of the series because I had a story, every secret thing that wouldn't fit the series. Then I went back to it and found that I was like, well, this is interesting. It's like I'd done cross-training and learned some new things about writing. Uh-huh. And I kept going back and forth. And, and so far, the pattern has worked, I think, for, the, for me, for the books, for tests. Everybody seems pretty happy with it. Now, of course, it's, it's the inclination for many of us to, to assume some autobiographical dimension to Tess, you know, who does resemble you and your life to a certain degree. How do you respond? You know, I'm very flattered by that, and I think it's, um, it's fair. It's, Tess is not an autobiographical character in the factual details, and that was very conscious. I signed up for this. No one in my family did, so Tess's parents couldn't be more different from my parents. Um, I have a sister. Tess doesn't even have siblings. So to the extent that people want to assume that Tess and I have similar temperaments and thoughts and feelings, it's actually true, and I'm fine with it. I'm very complimented by it. I think it's, it's fair to sort of wonder where does Tess begin and, you know, where do I end? Because there is a lot of back and forth. I mean, I've been – well – I mean, the statistical odds is this is going to be the longest and most successful relationship of my adult life, so. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations. We're glad you two are so happy. (laughs) We've been together for over 10 years, and, um, you know, I I don't see how anyone else is going to catch up with that. (laughs) Now, uh, tell us the significance of the title of this book. You know, it seems to me that with all of you guys, you know, the title really is is a gateway to... What's going to unfold? How do well, you come up with that? Another thing to follow is, is about the world of television, and it's specifically about how many people think they want to work in television. And it's about the power it has over people. I mean, it's something I didn't know until I was kind of thrust into that world in spite of myself. 
everybody has an idea for a television show. Uh, television, I think, more than anything, seems to be kind of a national narrative that we all mm-hmm. think we speak, which we do on some level. I mean, if you watch a television show, chances are, even now with reality programming, I mean, the, the lure of reality programming in part when it started was that you couldn't know what was going to happen because it was nonfiction and therefore wouldn't follow um, conventional narrative arcs. Now it does. Now if you watch the programming, there are tells in the editing. And people, I've, I've spent a lot of time reading the boards on television without pity for all sorts of reasons. It actually began when I was researching a book on teenagers. And mm-hmm. you'll find that people can tell through the editing what's going to happen on a reality show. So we do speak this language, and we are all drawn to it. And I think most people think, given the chance, they could certainly make a better television show than most of the television shows they see. And, and excuse me, for folks who may not know, tell us what your connection um, to television I am, is. I'm married to the executive producer of The Wire. And, you know, so this has been part of my life for, for six years. And I've seen, you know, I, I always think that the, the story for me that really kind of affirmed for me that we were, you know, we were no longer in Kansas, Toto, <laughs> was the day that there were some workmen who came over who had been hired by my husband. But he'd gotten in very late the night before. He'd, he'd gotten in at 3 a.m., as he often did when he was working. And so I was letting him sleep in, and I went downstairs to meet the workmen. And they were very adamant, no, they could not deal with me. They must talk to David. And I, I thought they were just being incredibly chauvinistic or he was the person whose name was on the contract. So reluctantly, I went upstairs to wake him up and get him up and to come downstairs to deal with him. And it turned out that when they weren't installing carpet, they were musicians and they had a tape that they thought would be perfect for the wire. Perfect for the wire. And, exactly. you know, that was sort of the day where, like, you know what? Things are really a little bit different than they used to be. And, you know, I've gotten used to this. I've gotten used to hearing pitches for television shows right. and people who, you know, think that maybe I could get them a show on HBO just by, I don't know how I'm <laughs> supposed to do that. Um, <laughs> I've pointed out to people that if they're paying close attention, None of my work has yet been produced for television or film. (laughs) So if I know something, I'm I'm clearly not doing it very well. But, yeah, so another thing to fall comes from measure for measure. And, you know, the full quote is, it's one thing to be tempted. It's another thing to fall. And for me, this is very conscious in terms of it's one thing to sort of have that secret little yen, that secret little fantasy that you could write a television show. But it's another thing to go to great and horrible lengths to do that. I don't actually know of any real stories where, where people have necessarily committed homicide as an insp- I wouldn't be surprised. I honestly wouldn't. I mean, if you think about actually just some of the horrible crimes that have been committed against actors and actresses where people have become obsessed with them and mm-hmm. stalked them and in yes, one famous case killed them, it is about this weird relationship that develops between people and what they see on television. So, tell, of course, I'm one of those people that because I'm on the radio show, uh, the radio show people always tell me that I have the perfect face for radio. So there's, there's <laughs> absolutely no danger that I'm doing TV anytime soon. But um, tell us a little bit about what unfolds. It's, it's about a, a show called oh. uh, Man of Steel. Man of Steel. Which is you, you asked me about autobiography earlier, and I said, you know, I signed up for this. Nobody else did. So I do try to hold other people in my life harmless from those assumptions and inferences. So The Wire has generally been received very well in the critical community and given credit for being intelligent and well-written. So I thought, well, one way I can convince people I'm not writing about The Wire, which I'm definitely not, is I'm going to create a really stupid television show, the stupidest television show possible. So it's called Man of Steel. 
It's about a steel worker named Herman Mann, and he gets... It's a good he, start for stupid, isn't it? <laughs> good start for stupid. Um, he gets hit on the head, as you do, and you know, time travels, as you do every time you get hit on the head in a television show. <laughs> and he wakes up in the 19th century where he uh, meets Betsy Patterson before she is to marry and then be divorced from Jerome Bonaparte, the younger brother of Napoleon. And Herman's big problem is he's, he's falling in love with Betsy Patterson. He doesn't know how his romance with her might change history. But meanwhile, he has to get back to the 21st century because there's a very important union vote. And, <laughs> and every time someone tries to explain this to Tess, the part that she finds most fantastic is the idea that there's an important union vote at a steel factory in the 21st century. She's like, what? You know, what's going on? I mean, have you seen Bethlehem Steel? Do you know what's going on? She finds so... Um, that is the um, television show at the heart of, of Another Thing to Fall. Other, there, but you know, there's a whole resume. There's a whole CV for the various characters. They've also worked on a show called um, Mildred, Pierced, which is about a sort of cross between Veronica Mars and Joan of Arcadia. It's about a young goth girl who likes to investigate crimes at her own time. Um, and Ottoman's Empire, which is about a private eye named Ottoman and who never leaves the office. It's Nero Wolf, but it's really been wildly updated in that the Archie Goodwin character is a female. This is, a, this is some of the mini brain, the brain children of our um, young Wunderkinds. And of course, there there is you know some murders and things. Of course, of course, there's um, you know, and Tess is initially hired because there have been some small incidents of vandalism on the set, and they claim that they fear for the safety of their lead. But in the wake of a homicide on the set, she or actually in the production offices, she finds out that they haven't exactly told her the truth about why they wanted her to work for them. Good. Well, let's hear an excerpt from another um, thing to fall. Set this up. The homicide has just happened, and Tess has gone to lunch with the executive producer of the show, a guy named Flip, um, and he's admitted for the first time how much he hates his lead, and he calls her a satanic spawn, a total nightmare. I wish the network would let us write her out of the show after the first season, have man continue on without Betsy Patterson. Tess said, and lose the whole blue blood meets blue collar thing? I thought that was the concept that made it really go. Are you this obnoxious to all the people who hire you, or do you sometimes manage to fake enthusiasm for their enterprises? It's the nature of my business to work for people with different tastes, values, essential even. I wouldn't work at all if I had to be gung-ho about all my clients' professional lives. Still, do you have to be such an asshole? A fair question under the circumstances. I don't mean to be a jerk, really. The broad outlines of this show you're doing, I'll admit it, I just don't get it. It's history, it's time travel, it's comedy, all set in the context of this never-never land of a thriving steel company in the 21st century. Well, Flip countered, girl's house gets swept up by tornado, and she's transported to a magical land where she expends all her power trying to get home again. Okay, yeah, but the Wizard of Oz is a fantasy. Billionaire media mogul whispers a mysterious name on his deathbed, launching a journalist attempt to understand the private man behind the public figure. Yet the truth about Rosebud doesn't really solve any of those mysteries. Although it was rumored to be William Randolph Hearst's pet name for Marion Davies' nether regions, Tess said, grateful for once to have one of her boyfriend's bits of trivia so readily at hand. Okay, when you reduce anything to a thumbnail description, it sounds a little silly, but woman will do anything for the love of her ungrateful daughter, including confessing to the murder that the daughter committed. Mildred Pierce, and there's no murder in the book, which is a thousand times better. 
Man builds a baseball diamond in a cornfield behind his house, and shoeless Joe Jackson appears, but now Flip had gone too far. A bridge too far, a baseball diamond too far. I hate that movie, Tess said. And the bare brick walls sent her voice bouncing into every corner of the restaurant. She regained her composure. Sorry, but don't get me started on that cornball mush. How can you hate Field of Dreams? It's a male weepy. And you know, I'm okay with the male weepy. We all deserve our weepies. My issue is that what makes men cry is elevated to profundity, while what makes women cry is denigrated as sentimental. When you take my corn seriously, I'll grant yours equal respect. What makes you cry? Beaches. Major League, which is a better baseball movie than Field of Dreams, by the way. Even as Tessa's mouth provided that glib reply, her brain was thinking about what really did make her cry. There is a certain expression on her greyhound's face, a wisp of a seeming smile. The Bromo Seltzer Tower, glowing blue in the night. Old television footage of Brooks Robinson being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And now there was the matter of a young woman, beaten to death just last night, but Tess wasn't hypocrite enough to admit that she felt anything but shock and dismay over that. The only thing that resonated was the violence of the death. A fatal beating took time and not a little passion. Besides, Flip was talking about cinematic tears. Okay, then little Dominic dying in Noodle's arms in Once Upon a Time in America, but also Noodle's coming back through the bus station door, 30 years of time summed up in a single shot. The Wild Bunch. The memory of a carrot-haired man who had loved the Wild Bunch, living and dying by the codes distilled from his beloved Westerns. Had it really been just over a year ago, she reached for her knee. Maybe one day the scar wouldn't be there. Maybe one day it would all be a dream, just like in the movies. Strictly ballroom, Tess admitted. When the music goes out and the father starts to clap and they show they can do the paso doble without any music at all, her eyes started to mist, making her seem truthful. But she was still thinking of that carrot-haired man dying on the cold cement of a parking lot, leaving her to fight for her own life and avenge his. You haven't shot down my central point, Flip said. Anything sounds ludicrous when boiled down to the pitch, but it's all in the execution. Why do you think Hollywood produces so much crap? Because there's seldom any economic penalty? No, well, yes, I mean, no. People's careers do suffer from doing critically disdain work, if it's also commercially inert. The point... Flip said irritably, as if unused to being interrupted, and he probably was. The point is that the writing, the performances, the visuals, those will combine to make the show something really special. That's why we're starting small on a C-list cable network with only eight episodes. People forget, but there was a time when getting a series on HBO was considered second rate. The Sopranos was pitched to the networks first, and they all passed. By the way, has anyone ever proposed adapting your life story? Food arrived, a house salad for Flip, a much heartier steak salad for Tess, and she was spared answering right away. Last year, I was involved in a case of some notoriety, and some producers circled for a while. You make them sound like vultures. Tess forked up a mouthful of steak and greens that required much judicious chewing. They were just doing their job, Flip persisted. Look, you go to the movies. You read newspapers and magazines, right? Well, the material has to come from somewhere. A friend of mine was killed in front of me. I killed a man. I never thought of it as material. Laura Lippman. So thank you. That's just great. Thanks. That's great. So Manuel Suri, you know, when we 
hear the excerpt from Dan's book, and, and we have uh, references to Nablus and Jerusalem and places we read about in the news all the time, or in Laura's book, references to movies we've seen, or, or in the case of people who live here in Baltimore, you know, there's so many wonderful local references. Your books, uh, Death of Vishnu and Age of Shiva, uh, dwell in on the, the Hindu tradition. Um, perhaps that may be uh, a little less familiar to us uh, than some of these other allusions. Give us, start with a little primer. Uh, about who Shiva is and Shiva's place, uh, as, as I understand it, there are a couple of different branches of Hinduism, and Shiva plays a, a different role in each each of those. Well, uh, I think you mentioned the first book too, the death of Vishnu, and uh, uh, this was something that sort of happened to me. I was actually writing a story, a short story about a man dying in a building. This man is some someone that I knew, uh, and his name was Vishnu. And uh, I was actually taking a writing course at uh, the Writer Center in Bethesda, and the instructor said, you know, if you're going to have a story named Vishnu, you need to think of the god Vishnu, because he is one of the main deities in Hinduism. And um, that's when I first started thinking about Hindu mythology, which I knew nothing about. So even though it sounds like, okay, I must be an expert and so on, uh, I'm not. And I just got into this purely by chance. Uh, And then I started reading into it, and I realized that Vishnu, uh, there's a trinity in Hinduism, and Vishnu is uh, someone who's the preserver of the universe, much like this man in the first book, uh, he was he was sort of an unofficial caretaker of the building, and so that that was a nice analogy that I was able to play with there. Uh, after I finished that first book, um, I, I was my agent was asking me, "Well, I'm going to send this out, this manuscript out to other people, uh, to to publishers. What are you going to do next?" And I just thought to myself, you know, there are three gods. There's uh, Shiva, uh, who's, the, who's the destroyer, and there's Brahma, who's the creator. I could write a trilogy. And, and so I, I told her, you know, I'm going to write a trilogy. And she said, oh, that's a great idea. And then I thought to myself, you know, it took me five years to write the first book. Yeah. Uh, what have I committed myself to? So I told her quickly, uh, like in a day or two, just, just don't write that part about the trilogy in your letter. Um, <laughs> And she said, oh, no, 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 I've already sent it off, and they love the idea, Uh, so you are writing a trilogy. And so that's when I started thinking about Shiva, and Shiva is a very interesting uh, deity. He's the destroyer, as you you might have mentioned, Uh, but he's also an ascetic. He's someone who... Uh, who withdraws from the world, and without his participation, the world starts starts winding down. He's often called the erotic ascetic because he's he's someone that you can't attain. He's always withdrawing, and so that's the kind of essence that I picked up. You know, the sense of eroticism. This is someone that people can love and people can ye- really yearn for him, but they'll never attain him. And so that's the central kind of theme in the book. And your protagonist, Mira, uh, we meet her when she is about 17, I suppose. And yeah. she has her eye on someone who, at least at first blush, appears to be uh, unattainable, as you say. Uh, tell us how that proceeds. Tell us a little bit about the story of uh, the age of Shiva. Well, Mira, in the beginning, it's, uh, it's about seven years after India's independence. And Mira is sort of flushed with this idea that you know, India is going on to new new uh, realms and uh, is making progress and she she sets her eyes on her on her sister's on her sister's boyfriend 
and she's been following them around, and she's uh, and her sister is pr- purposely uh, wagging this man in front of her, her of Mira, trying to make her jealous. And so Mira falls for it, and she decides she's going to make a play for this man whose name is uh, Dave, and it's it's not D A V E, it's D E V. They they sound similar, but it's an in Indian name, Dave. And so she makes a play for him, and she actually attains him through a complicated series of events. And she realizes at once that this is not a marriage that she wants to be in, but by then it's too late, and she finds herself married to him. And then basically she, she's thrust into this household, which is very conservative. She's come from a family. Her father is very liberal. He's uh, very secular. He wants to educate women. So on paper, he looks great. But uh, actually, he's sort of oppressive, too. And she finds herself in this conservative household, and she, she tries to make her way through this, tries to gain, uh, regain her balance. And the book basically follows her. Uh, how does a woman uh, react to this very patriarchal society? How does she kind of assert herself, really try to forge her own identity and make these choices that often appear as, you know, she's often reacting because that's the only thing that's open to her. So if her father says do something, she reacts and does the opposite thing. Well, let's hear a little bit about okay. her. I'm, I'm actually going to read you two short a- excerpts. Uh, first one is right from the beginning, and then I'll read you another tiny excerpt. Every time I touch you, every time I kiss you, every time I offer you my body, Ashwin, do you know how tightly you shut your eyes as with your lips you search my skin? Do you know how you thrust your feet towards me, how you reach out your arms, how the sides of your chest strain against my palms? Are you aware of your fingers brushing against my breast, their tips trying to curl around something to hold on to, but slipping instead against my smooth flesh? Ashwin, do you notice the wetness emerge from my nipples and spill down the slopes of my chest? Is that your tongue that I feel? Are you able to steal a taste or two? Ashwin, your eyes still closed, drops of moisture dappling your nose. Do you know how innocent you look, how helpless, as I guide the nipple towards your mouth? For an instant, I feel like teasing you, drawing my nipple across your lips, but only for a touch and swinging it away, watching your tongue dart out in confusion. The fingers still opening and closing and curling, worry beginning to crinkle your face. And that helplessness, that exquisite helplessness in your expression, that need for my body, for the nipple that is yours, for the breast I've so cruelly taken away. Yes, love can be capricious, can it not, my sweet? But of course I relent before I even begin. Your look suffuses me with guilt. I let your mouth close around me. I feel the pressure of your gums, your lips. The power in your jaws surprises me. A little more strength, and I can see there will be pain. Your tongue pulls against my nipple. So practiced, so persuasive, so determined. How does it know what to do? I feel myself responding. Each tug brings liquid flooding up, engorging my breast, pushing out into your insistent mouth. Your feet twist and turn against my belly as you feed. Your hands finally find purchase on my breast. Fingers splaying out around tiny palms, your orb, your world held in your hands. I lose myself in the rhythm of your intake. Am I imagining it? Or is there a parallel rhythm that echoes inside me? A longing that rises through my body and trembles under my skin. 
I feel myself flush. I feel the color spread through my chest. Then I see your face, your forehead losing its worry, your eyelids no longer wrinkled tight. I watch the smile trying to train the corners of your mouth, and the heat inside me turns into warmth. There is nothing, I think to myself, as you let go of my nipple and turn to me, filled. Nothing that can be as satisfying as this. Afterwards, I lie next to you. You fit so well into my body. Before closing my eyes, I take one last look. Your eyes, your ears, your hands, your feet, all these I check to make sure they're still there, still intact. Even the tiny curl of your manhood, nestling so innocently between the fleshy fold of your thighs. All this I have created. All this has come from me. As I drift off to sleep, I wonder if you will ever know these thoughts that flowed through my mind. These soliloquies I address to you, this conversation I keep up in my brain. Perhaps one day I will tell you about the yearning from which you were born, the lives with which you can play, the planets over which you hold sway. Ashvin, the sign in the sky. Ashvin, the constellation of twins. Ashvin, the one who went before you, the one with whom you share your name. You are the hope and the fire, the absolution, the purifier. You will deliver me, will you not, from this life I find myself in? So that's actually in 1969, uh, in 1965, it's uh, Mira talking to her son, Ashwin, and a lot of the story revolves around that relationship. Uh, I'm going to read you just another page, and that is uh, what happens when she first gets married and goes to Dave's house. So this is the first night she arrives there. Uh, Hema is Dave's sister, and uh, Sandhya is uh, Hema's sister-in-law. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of people there, like Arya, who's Dave's brother. And this is set in Delhi in 1955. The electricity was out on Dave Street. It's gone for the night, Hema announced cheerfully. We're one of the first ones they cut when the city runs out of power. She held a lit match under a candle to soften its base, then stuck it upright on the arm of a chair. We're just a government colony after all, not like the wealthy area where your father has his house. I sat perched on a charpoy in the only bedroom in the flat, the long edge of my sari draped over my face like a veil. It was difficult to maintain the pose Dave's mother had taught me. The sagging of the charpoy ropes kept threatening to topple me. But the position felt as centering as a yoga asana. By concentrating on keeping steady on the bed, I was able to take my mind off the despair closing in on me. You can speak now, you know. Even take that edge off. All the guests have gone. Though you'll have to show your face sooner or later, all those people who've been saying it's your sister who's the prettier one. Hema held up a candle near my head, filling the inside of my sari with light and trying to peer through. Besides, you must be dying under there, not being used to having the fans all off. Tell me, is it true? Dave Bhaiya said you had an air conditioner in your house? We had two, one in the drawing room and one in Paji's library, but I remained silent. Well, you at least had lots of servants, didn't you? Dave Bhaiya said your father made a lot of money as a publisher. Not that we don't have servants, mind you. Well, maybe not a servant exactly, but we do have a Ganga. She comes in to clean the pots. No cook, though. Don't worry, we won't make you work. 
Not while you're a new bride anyway. When Sandhya Didi was a new bride, just married to Arya Bhaiya, she didn't have to step into her kitchen even once for the first month. Now Mataji makes her do all the cooking, of course. Though between you and me, her rice clumps so much, the Ganga could do it better. I suppose we shouldn't expect you to be good either, being a rich man's girl and everything. I've already told my parents, when I get married, it's going to be to the wealthiest man they can find. Marry for comfort, that's what I want, not for love like you. Hema, my mother-in-law called, stop that Dehradun express tongue of yours and come right out. Coming, Mataji. Anyway, we'll talk more tomorrow. Tonight this room is yours. Arya Bhaiya and Sandhya Didi are sleeping with us in the other room, even though he's the elder brother. It's going to be tight. Plus, all that rich wedding food must have given Sandhya gas again. And on top of that, she snores. Hema fluffed up a pillow and laid it at my feet. You have such pretty toes. But I guess that's what new brides are supposed to have, at least in the beginning. I'm sure my bhaiya will be very impressed. She skipped to the door. Enjoy this special night of yours. Thank you. Manuel Suri. That's wonderful. It's just, just beautiful. Beautiful. And I'm, just, I'm also so uh, touched uh, that you write so um, beautifully about the experience of a mother breastfeeding her child. And I think, how can a guy do that? You know? I, that's really quite something. And, and all three of you, just the, the scenes are so vivid, and we get uh, these wonderful insights into, into people that uh, are immediately interesting and immediately fun. Now, I uh, promised that I'm going to be the keeper of the clock. We only have about 10 minutes left. So rather than uh, ask some, some things that I might have on my mind, let me uh, open up the floor to questions uh, for all of you, any questions for any of our three authors?